for what we cannot see, we ask that you give us sight by your Spirit. For what we cannot feel, we ask that you might break into our moment, that we might feel even a, a, a taste of it. For where we are in need of hope, I ask that you might meet us in our desire. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. The one who is our rock and our redeemer in his Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen. The Christmas before he died, I called a bookstore in Beaufort, South Carolina, and arranged for him to sign a copy of Beach Music for my wife. And so I did. And so they did. And his name is Pat Conroy. And so I presented that to her for Christmas several years ago. I'm still milking that one. (laughs) But Pat Conroy said a really wonderful thing about his life of writing. He said this, The most powerful words in English are, Tell me a story. Words that are intimately related to the complexity of history, the origins of language, the continuity of the species, the taproot of our humanity, our singularity, and art itself. If you have any kids in your life, it's a pretty good bet that when you put them to bed, they do not ask you, give me three propositions, Daddy. They say, tell me a story. And no one had to teach them to want that. They just did. And so you did. For whatever reason, tell me a story are powerful words. Some of the first words I ever shared with you when I became your pastor a little less than two years ago were words from a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre who said this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can first answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part you want to go to college? Great. What for? You want, to, you want to get married? Okay, sure. Why? You want to pursue this or that vocation or this or that avocation? Great. What's it all for? What story are you a part of? How do you know that you should do that? And what's it all for? What story do you find yourself in? Stories have more than entertainment value at bedtime. They actually give us insight into what it means to live and to live well. Uh, Picked up a book over the weekend, a guy named Daniel Strange. He wrote a book called Plugged In. He said this, No wonder it's been said of Netflix that their greatest competition isn't another company, but the human need for sleep. (laughs) Some of you are going to ruin your 4th of July by binge-watching Stranger Things. Why? Yeah, you like to be entertained. Yeah, you like to kick back. Yeah, you know, there's only so much you can do with barbecue. But look, stories are more than stories. They're more than escapes. You know why Stranger Things works, I think? Because in a world that wants to give up on the idea of a universal transcendent, Stranger Things provides you a way to still think that there might be something more than just what we can see, feel, touch, or reproduce in a lab. We may not want to submit to anything, but we don't want to give up on the idea that there may be something more than what we can see. That's why a story like that still works. And that's why Daniel Strange says that stories are so crucial that they actually form culture. Culture, he says, is the stories, just the stories we tell that express meaning about our world. Stories form not just something to discuss over a water cooler. They form the very language and the vocabulary of our existence, of the way we understand reality. That's what stories are. 
They're not just a way to pass time. They reflect the way we believe about the world, but they also begin to shape the way we think about our world. I have no idea who Barry Lopez was until about two weeks ago. I heard somebody else quote him, but Barry Lopez said this about stories. Everything is held together with stories. That is all that is holding us together, stories and compassion. In a world that is full of stories, and a lot of those stories compete, and a lot of those stories fight for our attention and fight for prevalence, when there's a world that is so full of polarization and animus that we don't know what to do, he's out to tell us, look, man, the only thing we've got are stories and compassion. You better hang on to those. If I haven't yet made an adequate case for the power of stories yet, I don't know what else. I can't help you. And that is why for the remainder of our summer, we are going to take a big shift from the same source, but in a different frame. For the last six months, we've been listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But what we're going to do for the last eight weeks of this summer is not consider his sermons, not consider his encounters, not consider his propositions. We're going to consider the stories that he tells, the stories that he calls parables. Because in those stories is something more than just a vivid image. In those stories is something more than just him grabbing for something familiar to make a point. In these little stories that he tells, he is out to tell us a much larger story. And I would argue, as many others have, that many of the stories that you most resonate with are because they connect you with a much larger story that you haven't maybe quite put your finger on. Brief stories, vividly put, poignantly making a point. That's what his parables do. And to prepare you for listening to what he does in his stories, I want you to hear a poem that stopped me in my tracks while I was walking through a sculpture garden down on the coast of South Carolina two weeks ago. It is written by a woman named Joy Harjo. She's a Native American. She was just tapped as the poet laureate of our country. But she has written a wonderful poem, I don't know when, that I could think of no one else other than Katie Winkler to want to read it. So Katie's going to come up and read it. And I want you to hear the story in it, the familiar image that's in it, and the poignancy with which it's spoken. Get ready. Perhaps the world ends here by Joe Harjo. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens, our dogs away from it. Babies teethe at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men in it. We make women. At this table, we gossip, recall enemies, and the ghost of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves. And as we put ourselves back together once again at the table, this table 
has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth at this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. Everybody in this room knows what a kitchen table is. But you listen to that poem and you'll never look at your kitchen table the same way. Something familiar and mundane and something you take for granted most of the times that you sit at it or eat at it, whether you sit alone at it or you sit with others at it, that table, she argues, is far more than you ever imagined. And she tells it in a narrative style in which there is a beginning and an end and she speaks of it very vividly and she makes the poignant point that it is Far more than you could ever ask or imagine. And that is exactly what Jesus will do with his parables. They're brief. You blink, you'll miss it. They reference things that everybody in his audience would be familiar with and would be able to track with immediately. Hopefully some of those things we can track with too. And they're all making a very poignant point that is actually a little story trying to point to a much larger story. That's what all of the parables do. Little stories making reference to a much larger story. And we want to tell that bigger story by use of his little ones. And in the story that we're going to tell today, in the little parable that he speaks of in in Mark chapter 4, he's actually going to summarize that big story in four verses. The big story that Jesus is out to tell us by means of his little stories, we're going to learn three things today. That story, that big story, has a point to it. But that big story also has a plot for it. And most of all, though, that story has a power behind it. There's a point to it. There's a plot in it. And there's a power behind it. No extra charge for a little alliteration. So if you're able to stand, we're in Mark chapter 4. Would you stand for the reading? We're in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 4, starting in verse 26. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises, night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This is the evocative word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All his stories make a point. But all his stories are out to point to the bigger story. And that bigger story has a point found in this text. And that big story, that point of the big story, is what you heard in verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God 
is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Full stop. The point of the big story is the kingdom of God. And that, if you've been with us, is not new to your ears. In fact, you might say that the whole Sermon on the Mount, as we said over those six months, was an outline of what it meant to live in that kingdom. But it's very possible that you can hear the kingdom of God on several occasions go, ah, yes, I'm tracking with you, and then walk out and go, no, what? What is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God, and how is that the point of the big story? Let me set it for you in these terms. What is the kingdom of God? Okay, imagine, if you will, you're a teacher in a second grade class on the first day of school. And on the first day of school, in second grade, it is like the inmates have been let out of the asylum. And they are running around with their hair on fire. Some kid is gargling water from the fish tank. Children are sticking pencils up their nose, and the teacher is wondering, now they don't make those with lead anymore, right? Bedlam, chaos, disorder. Where shall the order come from? That's day one. And then hopefully, Lord willing, by day 30, through her grace, love, and wisdom, there's new structure. There's rhythm. There's understanding. There's solidarity. There's collegiality. There's, there's laughter and banter and listening and inquisitiveness. And there's finally a context in which the intentions of the teacher have now met reality. And now all of those in her care have found a way into that world and into their ability to live and to flourish. That's a classroom where intention has become reality. That's the kingdom of God. That's the point. Whatever God has an intention for, that intention comes to reality where the kingdom of God is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Wherever his will is done on this earth, there the kingdom is. There the kingdom is found, where intention becomes reality. But that kingdom has a certain set of features to it. How do you know where the kingdom is? We won't be able to speak of it exhaustively here, but if all you did is read the first four chapters of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, we got to Mark chapter 4 here, you, you read the first three chapters before that, you see what goes on where the kingdom is. Jesus comes on the scene and bam, he is already restoring people from their affliction to their health. That which has held them in in a kind of uh, mental or physical affliction or tyranny for decades, he has come to restore. That's where the kingdom is. Where mercy and kindness and healing have come to make their presence known and it's come with power. That's where the kingdom is. But even in those first four chapters, Jesus has come to remove distortions and confusion about what is the nature of reality. We just sang, this is my father's world. What is my father's world? That's what he's come to show us. That's where the kingdom is. But the very first words out of Jesus' mouth when it comes to the kingdom is in chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. The kingdom of God is found and known and embraced and enjoyed only first by setting aside something. By turning aside from our incessant inclination to build our own kingdoms upon which we become the king of our own manner in which we find the greatest refuge and greatest security. Jesus says you have to repent of thinking that you can be the king of your own kingdom. I'm the king Set aside your desire to make your own kingdom 
Whatever it is you might give yourself to, fine. Let it be in submission to what I have for you. I'm the king. Repent. The features of this kingdom are where he has come to bring restoration, where there was distortion, understanding where there was confusion, but also repentance. I have spent the last six days in Dallas, Texas for our church's annual denominational assembly. And it was a wonderful time of reunion with many of the friends I had when I lived there over the last 20 years. But at that assembly, there was all manner of contention over all the kinds of issues that you expected churches to be debating these days. And oftentimes that tension was thick and palpable. And yet what can be said of everybody in that room, regardless of what side, of what issue they were debating or deliberating, and that's a euphemistic way of putting it, everybody was asking the same question. What does it mean to submit to Jesus as Lord? What does it look like for the kingdom to be faithful and to flourish? You can accuse people of a lot of things, but you can't accuse them of not wanting to see the point of the story of God's intention become reality. That's the nature, that's the point of the kingdom. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And that point of the kingdom, that point of the story, the, the, the inbreaking of the kingdom, you know how it comes about? Jesus likens it to sowing, like a farmer scattering seed upon the ground. That's how it happens. It just doesn't sort of poof, it's there. It's, there's sowing involved. There's um, a giving away. There's you receive something and then you give it back. Any anybody that's a farmer that wants to, um, you know, cultivate any kind of crop, he's first got to get the seed, receive it, and then he's got to give it away. It's the nature of the kingdom. That which is received is given out. That which is made for spreading is spread abroad. And how is the news of the kingdom? How is the reality of the kingdom sown? You heard Jim say both in services and talking about Honduras, you know how it starts? You know how it's spread? By something as simple as praying. People think, what's, what's the good of that? And Jesus would say, oh, it's the good of everything. It's spread by praying. It's also spread by speaking. There is content to the nature of this kingdom. That sowing is through speaking. But in our day and age, when there is a lot of talk, and there's a lot of talk that's cheap, and there's a lot of hypocrisy that attends to that talking, sometimes something has to precede the talking before the talking ever has any credibility. Christine Pohl, uh, she's a, a theologian of a different tradition, but she speaks in a book called Living Into Community. She says this, the best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. You can be persuasive till you're blue in the face about the logical coherence of God's reality and life. But if you are part of a community that bickers and despises one another, no one cares what you say. And don't we know it? A watching world looks on and goes, man, how can I make sure that I never am part of you given the way you treat each other? And yet when they begin to see something about the quality of the community that's around you, the way you love each other, the way you care for each other, the way you forgive each other, even when you screw up royally, that creates an interest. That creates the possibility of them in countenancing the idea that maybe what you have to say and what you represent might be true. Because when you have that quality of community, people begin to ask, what are you about and why is it what holds you together? And then what happens through that sowing, is conversation. 
Again, let me give you something else from Barry Lopez. Conversations, he says, are efforts toward good relations. They are the exercise of our love for each other. They are the enemies of our loneliness, our doubt, our anxiety, our tendencies to abdicate, to continue to be in good conversation over our enormous and terrifying problems is to be calling out to each other in the night. People think you relate through an online world, and though that is true to some extent, is it not a paradox of a social media kind of world that the number one thing that is affecting our world across the generations is the problem of loneliness? We are connected, but we are distant. We curate our profiles, but nobody knows the real us because we're afraid of being vulnerable before one another. And we don't know how to have a conversation with one another. And yet what we most need is somebody to tell us, why is it okay to be not okay? And in those conversations that we might be able to formulate with risk and with with great courage, Maybe we drop down fear and maybe we find a way to talk again. And those conversations are crucial. And conversations are necessary. And that sowing is through conversations. Such that Barry Lopez says this about stories and conversations. The stories people tell have a way of taking care of them. If stories come to you, care for them. And learn to give them away where they are needed. Sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive. I invited somebody to the Questioning Christianity series we had last month on Wednesday nights. And the only way I could do that was having been in that person's life for about 18 months. Dropping in, having some coffee, talking about stuff. Until after that friendship sort of emerges over that long, you finally get a point to where you say to them, you have the kind of freedom to say, you ever think about stuff that's deep? You ever think about the meaning of life? What? And then a conversation kind of ensues in that way. And then conversations are built in that way. That's how the kingdom is sown. It's sown through love. It's sown through prayer. It's sown through speaking. It's sown through community. That is the story. And that is the big story's point. And that story, if it has a point, it also has a plot. Every story that you like, something happens, somebody dies, somebody's missing, something's found, and, and then the whole world is thrown out of joint, and the way the story is driven along is by an attempt to find a resolution or be okay with no resolution or find the person that's missing or, um, you know, get back home, whatever it might be. There's always a plot. It's why you lean in. It's why you listen. You want to know how it ends. Jesus speaks of this story with a point in terms of its plot, and you hear that plot actually at the end of the passage when he says in verse 29, 28 and 29, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's the plot of this story with a big point in the kingdom? It's a progressive unfolding It doesn't happen all at once. What's happening in Honduras next month started a long time ago. And the fullness that it finds itself in right now is nothing of what it was when it began. 
And so Jesus picks up on the very nature of horticulture, the very nature of farming. You start with a blade, first the ear, then the, the first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. There's a progressive nature to the unfolding of the kingdom. There is no such thing as an instantaneous blossoming. Everything moves through stages. In my household right now, a new thing is skateboarding. Um, and the thing about skateboarding is uh, they will not go on the street with a skateboard unless they have the helmet and the pads all over them. And in which case, they put all that stuff on and then they look like they're in a, a, a scene from the Transformers. Like they're all covered up, body armor, the whole thing. Why? Because no one learns to thrash overnight. Did I do that right? <laughs> Never mind, don't tell me if I did one. The only way you're going to learn to, to navigate curves and to be able to check your speed is you're going to have to fall. It's going to have, stuff's going to have to get beat up and, and bruised. And that's why you've got all that body armor on you so that at least you can get up after you fall. It's just the nature of a thing that you long to aspire to. There's a progression to it. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God always, always passes, moves, matures in time over world. Look, the ideas of the kingdom, that there is a God, that that God is full of might and majesty, that God has grown so fondly of that which he has created that he ascribes to everything that he's created with great dignity. And because of that dignity that they're born in the very, and created in the very image of God, that he extends to them grace and forgiveness through the blood of his son, that he says to them, oh, you know what? You're worse than you know, but you're more beloved than you could ever imagine. Never heard that before? Those ideas, those ideas, you got to hear them and you got to go, what? And are you sure? And they got to sit with you and they got to simmer and they got you got to wrestle with it. You got to fight with it. You go, I'm not sure that's it. And why would you say that? And, and then it sort of comes into sharper focus. And therefore the idea of, of anybody having dignity, it's not self-evident that people have dignity. The idea that forgiveness ought to be at the center of our humanity, that's not self-evident. Look at human history. Those ideas only take hold over time until some people wrongly conclude that they just have been here forever. Oh, no, they, they haven't been here forever. But what about just the human heart? If, in fact, the kingdom of God, Jesus will say in other places, is within you, within, our, within the, the collective body of those who are in Jesus, what does it look like for, for there to be a progression in one's own pilgrimage in Jesus? John Newton, you, you may know his story, was a, 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 if you can use these words, famous slave trader in the same sentence, who then renounced his slave trading and who, who, who came to Jesus and then who, who ended up writing the most famous song we all know, Amazing Grace. He came to be known as a great resource of kindness and consolation. You can read his letters. And one of the letters that came to him was, how do I, what does it look like to grow? Because their very experience of growth felt so, so uneven and so modeled. And, and John Newton wrote a long letter that you can read in the resources that I've got on the website this week for this sermon. He wrote a, a, a series of letters based upon this very passage. And he told this person who was sort of agonizing over their own sense of, it's not working. I don't feel any more full of faith. He says, look here, this is the way it works. The, the, the life in Jesus has kind of got different stages to it. And, and early on, he calls that stage phase A, he calls it. That's the phase known as, as desire. But you come to understand Jesus, and you're kind of awed by that. And you're kind of like, wow, this is amazing, really? His love is that strong, and he'll love me anyway? And you're just sort of, woo. 
eyes are wide open and you're on your knees and you're shouting for joy and all of that's just wonderful. Now, it's great and, and uh, you know, you kind of forget some other things there. And so it's a real kind of awe and it's a real kind of appreciation, but it's not very deep. That's kind of phase A when you kind of come to know Jesus. Phase B, he calls, uh, he characterizes by the word conflict. Phase A was all about zeal and fervency and desire. And, and phase B is kind of like you kind of bump into yourself like you've never seen yourself before. And you realize that that which Jesus has come to save you from really is actually very dark and darker than you knew and more prevalent than you'd ever imagined. And you wrestle with that and you grapple with that and you're sort of, you're brought low by that and you don't know what to do with it and you anguish over why is it that I still struggle with this ingratitude and impatience and impetuousness and all that stuff. And that's the phase of, of conflict. Jesus doesn't become any less real, but, but as compared to the phase A, you're kind of like, wow, the, like the blinders have come off and I'm, the scales have come off and now I see myself so very much in need. Which then leads you to the third phase he calls the phase of contemplation. Which is not you sitting on a rock doing this. But it is coming into a more settled, simple, stable, a quieter view of his goodness. A deeper view of his love and his grace and his mercy. At every stage you are aware of your utter dependence on him. But in in this third stage of, of contemplation you are... You are more likely to run to Jesus for everything that you have a problem with than you were before because you really see yourself for who you are and now you're beginning to see him for who he is and you are humbled. And you are tender to those around you. And therefore you can embody that famous little axiom, be kind to everyone you meet, for everyone you meet is finding a hard battle. It's kind of the difference between the honeymoon where you're like, whoa, it's all new! And then, you know, you kind of bump into real life and go, whoa, what have I done? And then later, you can just sort of sit on the same couch together, close, but not say a thing, and you still feel close, because you feel it's real, because it's there, and it's like, you know, their love is real, it's not going away, you're not suffering from object permanence, where the thing goes behind the couch, and you think, it's gone! That love is outlasting, and it's steadfast, and that's sort of the way in which you see your own pilgrimage. That's the way the progressive nature of things. Uh, famous movie with uh, Harrison Ford, Force 10 from Navarone. Raise your hand, you ever see it? World War II film, right? Four Stand from Navarone. Their job is to go blow up a Nazi bridge and a, thro- a Nazi dam and the water's going to flow and, and this bridge is going to go out and it's going to cut off a main supply route for the German army. And so they go and Harrison Ford and the other guy, the British actor who was in Jaws, I can't remember his name. They go in, they set the charges. Boom! Exactly. Nothing happens. They stare at each other. They realize they've lost some of their buddies. They've risked life and limb. They're there. They were told, they set the charge, boom, the dam blows, nothing happens. They walk outside deflated, and about 30 minutes later, crack, 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 seepage, water, just delay between setting the charge and the blowing of the dam and the fulfillment of their mission. There's this lag time. Uh, that's to put this category perhaps in a little bit of a different illustration, but the nature of the kingdom is such that it unfolds progressively and there is a lag time. But with the progressive nature of the plot of this story, there is also a promise of culmination. And that's why he puts it in terms of 
language that farmers would know. Yeah, you seed, yes, it grows, but there is a harvest. That that which God wants for the world, God will get for the world in time. And that which God has begun in you, Paul says in Philippians 1, he will complete in you unto the day of Christ Jesus. What he starts, he will finish. And that is the promise. The plot will culminate in what we're looking for. There will be a day when there will be no more tears, Revelation 21 says. And there will be a feast. And you and I hear that. And if you've been around this church or any church, you go, yeah, that's what they say. But man, look around. It doesn't look like we're getting closer. Or it doesn't feel like it. In which case, sometimes all you can do is consider the source. Because the one who is saying to us that this plot will culminate in the harvest is the same way, the same one who walked into death and then lived to tell the tale. He died, but he rose. And he's the one telling us there will be a plot to the story and that plot will reach a fulfillment. Which means then he's got to tell us one last thing. Yes, there's a point to the story and that's the kingdom. Yes, there's a plot to the story. It will progressively unfold, but it will reach a fulfillment. But there is also, and absolutely and necessarily, a power behind it. The power behind this story is what you hear in the middle of the text. He, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed in the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. The kingdom of God is sown. He's made that pretty clear in the first point of his text. But its growth is its own work. The word there, produces by itself, is the Greek word automate, from which you and I get that word automatic. It happens. About a month ago, I shared with you the story of my hapless pear tree, which had nothing to do with the pear tree. It had everything to do with me. It sat in the bucket for over a year, and finally, it cried out to me, plant me, man! And so I did. And there it is. And when I first planted it in the ground, it had but nine leaves left. And now a month later, scads of leaves. Now, I didn't have to walk up to it and say, okay, now this is how you grow. I did not have to give it a master class in growth, like I know what that is. All I did was water it. And it kind of knew what to do. And it grew on its own. Why would Jesus want to be telling us that the kingdom grows on its own? So that you and I wouldn't feel like it's all on our shoulders, because it's not. Some of you may have been on one of these three-day weekends that I have been on when I was in college. It's a wonderful weekend where you get to hear the word preached and you get to be surrounded by people who love you and they like bring in encouragements from all over the country like every 15 minutes and you eat this awful food but you don't care. And then on the last night, all of you will show up to serenade you with love and I remember in that moment feeling palpably like the love of God was real in a way that I had never experienced before. And that on the day that you depart, They give you this cross, and they put it around your neck, and on the back of that cross it says this, Jesus has no hands and feet but yours. Upon reflection to which I would say, that's not true. Paul in Acts 17 gives his famous sermon at the Oropagus, and do you know what he says in the middle of that sermon? God is not served by human hands. He doesn't really need me. 
Jesus has all sorts of hands and feet, not my own. He can cover it. It is a privilege to sow, but it is not all on my shoulders to see that kingdom grow. Paul says in that letter to the church at Corinth, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God caused the growth. It's the nature of the kingdom. It doesn't need to be coached. Now, yes, thought has to come into play, and wisdom and stewardship and prayer and all of those things are involved in seeing the kingdom being sown properly. But don't put it all on your shoulders to think that it's growing on account of you. What Jesus is out to tell us in this last point is this. The growth of the kingdom is more a miracle than it is a method. The growth of the kingdom is more a miracle than it is a method. And it shouldn't shock us that Jesus would be out to tell us that by saying that the kingdom just sort of grows in a way we have no idea how. Because in another gospel, the gospel according to John, in John chapter 12, verse 14, Jesus gives a one-sentence parable. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it will abide alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. It's the way seeds work. you got to bury them as if they die. And then they sprout and grow. There's no other way. And why would Jesus tell a one-sentence parable like that? So that when he died, they would get it. Because he was the seed that was buried in the ground. And he bore much fruit when he rose again. And what does Paul say? It's true about his resurrection. Why did he rise? For our justification. Which is just big, a highfalutin word of saying this. When your faith is in Jesus, and you have been justified by that faith, you have now been forgiven of everything you regret, and a lot of things that you had no idea you did. You are forgiven of all your sin, and you are counted as unto him as one who is righteous before you in his sight. That's the gospel. That's why he died. That's why he rose. You've been risen so that you might be freed from the fear of your own death, from the guilt of your own sin, and from you having to feel like you've got to create something that will make anybody be approving of you. That's freedom. Freedom from turning your life into one big effort to merit his kindness. You can't. Freedom from trying to build your own kingdom so that you might think yourself worthy or somebody else or your daddy making you feel like you're okay. Freedom from trying to live in such a way that you, all you can do is just sort of seek everybody's approval. You've been raised to be justified so that you would be freed from all those things that you will naturally do if left to your own self. You will try to build your own kingdom. But if you're in his kingdom, then all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus dies and rises so that we might be justified and freed so that we know that the work is not on us. And yet there is still work to do. What do we do with it then? Where do we go from here? What does he have for us in this passage? He's had to tell us, first of all, don't miss the point. Whatever skill you want to learn, Uh, whatever job you want to find, uh, whatever person you might want to be, spend the rest of your life with, 
whatever vocation or avocation you give yourself to, fine. Serve it in the way that, it's, that it deserves. But realize none of those things can be your ultimate kingdom. They will all either disappoint you or be lost from you at some point. And that's why you have to bring every other effort, every other aspiration in submission to his kingdom. Don't miss the point. But at the same time, don't lose the plot. To become part of his kingdom and to become part, or to become part of his church, I only have to say this to you once. You will be disappointed. People will disappoint you. Your efforts at being faithful, you will be met with disappointment. It's just inevitable. But in saying don't lose the plot, Jesus is out to tell us don't despair even in the midst of your disappointment because that which he begins he shall conclude and finish. Don't miss the point. Don't lose the plot. And for goodness sake, don't underestimate the power. Don't underestimate the power by thinking it's all on you for anything to get done. And don't underestimate the power by thinking that even the smallest risks of faith are pointless. If it is true, as Joy Harjo says in that wonderful little poem, that men and women are made at a kitchen table. If it is true that wars are fought and wars come to an end simply by sitting around a table where our our kids put their books down and our parents put their smartphones down and we just love each other and listen to each other and ask each other about our day in which conversations begin to flourish, if that can happen at a kitchen table, how much more? How much more can God work with our feeble efforts to sow an idea through word and deed that God is, that he is good, and that he has come to us by grace? The whole of Jesus' life centered on a table. And though at the moment when he died, everyone around him thought for him that was his last sweet bite. It was, in fact, the first sweet bite of a new day. A day that looks forward to the sweet bite for us all at a feast of the Lamb. That is the story he's out to tell us. That is the story that's out to explain what it is we're to do, that is the story of the greatest compassion we'll ever know. May that be the culture and the story of this body and the church that is in all places. Let's pray. Father, it seems beyond us. And there are so many very compelling stories in our midst perhaps ones that are even in our head right now that seem to compete for the allegiance, compete for our hearts. And to be honest, Father, we feel most often weak before some of those other stories, and all we can do is cry out to you and say, tell us why, tell us why your love is more real, more substantial, even if we can only see it with the eyes of faith and receive it in glimpses and tastes. We ask that you would persuade unto us again the reality of this story and help us to see that all other stories find their completion in yours. And then would you free us from the fear of making you known that we might give away those stories to those who are looking for them even more than food to stay alive. In Jesus' name, amen.